Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to focus primarily on verses 27 through 30, but we are going to read verses uh, 18b through 30. So we're going to pick up at I rejoice in 18 uh, and read all the way through to verse 30. Let's read together. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by my life or by my death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. And may God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. As we come to this text, I want to remind you of a couple things. Um, he has made this declarative statement that is very powerful. He says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And we have... Uh, talked about that being summarized, to live as Christ, meaning Christ is life. Christ is the end-all of life. He is the be-all of life. He is, he is life. He is the definition of life. So we, we've discussed that, and we, we, we want to be reminded as we dive into this last portion of where Paul is in this chapter. He is literally in prison. He is being slandered by people outside the prison who are speaking ill of his reputation, who are uh, proclaiming the gospel out of envy and rivalry and vain conceit. And do you remember his response was, it doesn't matter what they say about me. His response is, it's not about me, it's about the gospel, and I rejoice because the gospel is proclaimed whether by right motivation or by wrong motivation. It's proclaimed. So he openly speaks this. And then, not only that, he's also being uh, physically hurt. He is facing physical persecution. 
He's being whipped pretty frequently. He's being he's locked in in a prison at this time. Maybe maybe some sort of house arrest, but most likely in in a more open jail type area. Um, he is being treated roughly, not kindly. We see this in the book of Acts. He's not treated with high honor and esteem. He's treated as a prisoner, because he is one, according to Rome. He is, he is um, he's facing slander from people who should be on his side. He's, he's facing abuse from the people who have locked him up. And he is in a difficult place. Now, with that in mind, remember his response. His response is this powerful, beautiful response. And so he urges us here in verse 27, giving us some outflow of his response. His response is, look, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm torn between two because right now it, I really want to stay and I really want to encourage you and I really want to lift you up. I really want to edify the church. I really want you to grow. He keeps saying these things. I really want you. I'm here for you. I have purpose for you. You are the reason I want to say I love you. This is very pastoral heart that Paul gives. And then he says, but I'm hard pressed because to go to heaven is obviously better than staying here. To be with Jesus is obviously better. But I'm hard-pressed between the two. My heart yearns for both. Now, that's Paul's circumstance. And out of that circumstance, he's going to give you these last four verses. And he's going to give you application. And it's pretty, pretty clear. But let's read it together. He says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now the words here for manner of life or uh, let your manner of life here are uh, the words let your conduct your citizenship. Conduct your citizenship. And I think one of the things that uh, lets us see how Paul is able to be so bold in the face of all his troubles, one of the things that lets us see that is this phrasing here. Let your citizenship. You see, you, you don't belong... Here, if you're a believer in Christ Jesus, this is not your home. You belong in a heavenly dwelling with Christ. If you're a believer in Christ, your citizenship is not here. There's an old, old book where one, a great theologian calls this resident aliens. He calls all Christians resident aliens. You are a foreigner who is living here for a time. But this is not your kingdom. And while we are here, we conduct ourselves as citizens of the greater kingdom. We conduct ourselves as citizens of the greater kingdom. Conduct your citizenship as citizens of heaven. Jesus himself affirms this in John 17, verse 16, when he says, They are not of this world. They're not of this world. They're in it. They're not of it. And then in Romans 8, 18, there's this glory that we are waiting for as sons and daughters of God to be revealed. We're waiting for God to reveal this and we wait with eager expectation, even alongside creation, waiting and groaning for God to reveal the kingdom. 
In 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17, he, he urges us not to place our affections on the things of this world. Because the things of this world pale in comparison to the glory that awaits. And indeed, if your love is here on this earth, then you have missed the point. Jesus is your chief affection. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, we are to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. That's Paul's urging to the Corinthians. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. In other words, we're to be looking to imitate Christ as our chief example of what a citizen of heaven looks like. I don't know if you've ever studied uh, the Caesars or Rome, um, but they, that started, the Caesarship, like Caesar, started as Julius Caesar being called the first citizen or the primary citizen. He was the example of all citizens of Rome. I think Paul has this analogy in mind when he says, conduct your citizenship. You see, because Caesar was this example of, uh, of, of model Roman citizenship, so he was to stand up as the example. So, our first citizen is Christ. Our first citizen is Christ. The one that we stand up as our example and as our Model as our king, as our Caesar, as our Lord, is Jesus. He's our first citizen, and we are to conduct our citizenship with him in mind. With him in mind. Now, how did, so if that's true, let's just do a little exercise this morning. I want you to think in your head. You've read the Gospels. Um, How did Christ conduct his citizenship here on earth? You've you read them, so think in your head. You, you, you're working, some of you, I see your, your wheels turning, you're thinking, he healed the lame, he uh, loved the poor, downtrodden, broken outcast, he uh, called the Pharisees out on being whitewashed tombs, he uh, stood for righteousness and holiness, he uh, hung out with sinners and broken people. Right? How did he conduct his citizenship? So I, I ran through a couple in my head. He cared for the poor and the lame and the broken. Uh, He lived a perfectly holy life, sinless, perfectly holy life. He lived a perfectly holy life. We see that, by the way, in 1 Peter 2, verse 22, and in Hebrews 4, verse 15. He he who, and then in 2 Corinthians, he who who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Um, He walked perfectly in the will of the Father. He walked perfectly in the will of the Father. Uh, John, the Gospel of John is loaded with that, but particularly in chapter 5, uh, verse 15, he says, I do nothing apart from my Father. In chapter 8, verse 20, it's the same. I do nothing apart from the will of the Father. Um, so I and the Father are one in chapter 10 and chapter, um, and later in chapter 12. So he served the lowest in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, and in Mark 10, verse 45, he tells you to serve the lowest too. He serves the lowest. Uh, he washed feet. And that one always gets me, right? He sits down, or kneels down, rather, to wash the feet of the disciples, including Judas. We're always good with washing the feet of those, metaphorically, washing the feet of those who are around us, unless they're Judas. Judas gets his feet washed by Jesus. 
Let that sink in for a minute. How did he conduct his citizenship? He had every right to reject Judas. He is the king of all glory, perfectly sinless, God Almighty, and yet he kneels down to clean off the one who is going to kill him. He shows mercy and patience to the wicked and then tells us to go and do likewise, uh, even making a parable about the entire thing, the Good Samaritan parable in Luke, right? Making this parable where he says the, the Good Samaritan is the one who is absolutely despised and hated by the guy on the side of the road. And he goes and takes care of him anyway at great cost to himself. This is beautiful. This is our chief citizen. This is the one we are to emulate, the one we are to look like. So just please tell me you feel the same conviction I do in thinking through this. How are you doing? Um, we got a lot of work to do, don't we? Um, I do. I, I do. <laughs> so, so how did Christ conduct his citizenship? Well, that's how we are to conduct our citizenship. He is the King of all glory, our Master and Lord. We worship and imitate Him. Now, notice here He says, uh, only let your manner of life be worthy of the Gospel of Christ. Conduct your citizenship worthy of the Gospel of Christ. The you there is plural. Just, just so you grasp. The you there is plural. This, this entire passage is all done in the context of Christian community. You, Lone Ranger Christians don't exist. We, they don't. You, you can't be a Lone Ranger Christian. Indeed, when you become a Christian, you are put into a community. You're put. Why do you think the Bible uses the term family? Because you don't get to choose. You get put in. You're born into it. You don't get to pick your family. That just happens. And they are your family. So here this is done in the context of community. You, as a group, conduct your citizenship together. Our citizenship is formed in joining a kingdom. You're joining a kingdom, not a cabin, by the way. Joining a kingdom, not a cabin. So, cabins are places you go to be by yourself, isolated from everybody. You may live in a kingdom and occasionally visit a cabin for solitude. A great practice, by the way, getting some space. I know most of us have done with space. But the, you, you know, it's great practice. But you may, you may go to a cabin, visit a cabin, but you don't, you don't join a cabin. You join a kingdom. You joined a kingdom. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 17 calls us fellow heirs, plural. Fellow heirs. And... John chapter 15, 15, Jesus calls us friends. In John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, All who believe are given the ability to become children of God. They become children of God. Children. You get brothers and sisters out of this deal. You're not alone. Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 20, calls us fellow citizens and members of of the oikos, or community, or household of God. This word oikos that's used in Ephesians to describe the community of faith is the idea of an apartment complex that had a common meeting area. 
If you ever study the word household in the Bible, you've got this, this concept of a community that all shared a common area. It's kind of like a modern apartment complex, only closed with a big wall around it, typically. And it would be your community. You shared your eating space, your living space, your cooking space, your washing space. All those were common area, shared areas. And you might have uh, multiple families living in this one oikos household. You have joined household of faith. Galatians chapter 6 verse 10 calls us the commun- part of the community or household oikos of God. You see, life is best lived, citizenship is best conducted in the context of a community. Together. We conduct our citizenship and faith together, engaging one another. You have to, you have to actually do this. It's not something that just kind of happens behind the scenes. It's something we do together. Here we have a we have a saying here at the church. We all have struggles. We all have struggles. Let's struggle together. Your struggles just look different than mine, but we all have them. Let's struggle together. This is the idea of conducting your citizenship. So we see that we're to conduct our citizenship in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. What a calling! What a calling to, to tell somebody. That's just, can, can you let that land on you? Conduct your citizenship in a, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Your life ought to be one that Christ looks at you and goes, yeah, that's worthy of what I did. That's worthy of the Son of God coming to the earth, taking on your sins, dying on a cross, bearing the wrath of God on His shoulders for you, and rising again to give you life. That He would look at you and go, worthy of that sacrifice. What a calling. What an amazing thing to think that your people can do. Because he doesn't say this saying you're not going to be able to. No, he says, do it. Conduct your citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's almost an afterthought to him. Conduct your citizenship worthy of the gospel of Christ because you can't. Because God will look at you and find value in you. Because you're able to. The Spirit of God has been put in your heart and you can, you can walk this life. You can love and you can obey and you can live the way that Christ has made you to be. This is powerful. Now the word to be worthy means to stand up to scrutiny or to be weighed and found valuable. To stand up to scrutiny or to be weighed and found valuable. Look, if you can stand up to scrutiny and be found to have value, if you can stand up to scrutiny and be found to have value, then get the application here. If Paul is telling you, 
that your life ought to be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And you can stand up and you can be found to have value. And Christ can look at you and say that it is worthy. Get this. Your work here matters. Your efforts matter. Your love for people matters. You have value. The assumption that Paul is making here is that you are working. That you are, you are working. And that work has value. That work has purpose. And that work has meaning. It calls you to a worthy life. And worthy of what? Of the gospel of Christ. It is Jesus' gospel. It is His. Your life is worth, your worth is determined by this gospel of Christ. You are worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ because He has deemed it so. It is His to give to whom He wishes. It is His gospel. So hear this. If you have trusted in Christ Jesus, just take a moment. Just take a moment and think about that. God has seen enough in you and for you and He desires you to a point where He has given you the Gospel. He has given you the Gospel. If you have trusted in Him, He has given you the Gospel. How beautiful is that? How wonderful is that? If you have not trusted in Christ, Repent and believe. Repent and believe. This is the only way to life. We saw it in verse 21. Christ is life. Not an idea. He is life itself. So verse 27, he says, Conduct your citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent. So whether he, whether Paul, Paul is writing to the Philippians and he's saying, whether if I get out of jail and I get to come see you, or if I'm stuck here in jail, whether I come to see you or I'm absent or I'm gone and you never see me again, one or the other, that I could hear of you, that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So he gives them this urging, saying, look, if I come to you or if I'm stuck here, I want you to, to do this. I want you to be this way so that I could hear of it. Now, why does he want to hear? Let's just backtrack the last two weeks. We talked about why we, uh, why we, would, uh, why we would follow. And part of the reason is because your faith is edification to other believers. Your life is an encouragement to other believers. And so Paul wants to have some benefit of that encouragement in Christ. right? He wants to have some benefit of that. And so he gives them these really three, uh, three exhortations and then kind of a conclusion. So here they are. It's that you would be, first, that you would be standing firm in one spirit. That's the first one. And this word standing firm is the idea of holding the line. I don't know how many of you watch any military movies or old uh, time period, old Roman 
conquest movies or whatever, but there's this idea of holding a line, defending uh, the, the position or holding your post. And so Paul is writing to them saying, I want to hear that you are holding the line. You are keeping your post. We, we get some uh, encouragement to understand this in, in, the, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8 and following, when he talks about how you're given these various roles for the edification and uplifting of the church so that we would not be tossed about by every wind of doctrine but that we would hold fast to the truth, to the gospel. Hebrews 2 likewise warns us to stay faithful to the message of the gospel that we heard from the beginning. Note, again, this is plural. I want to hear that you all are standing firm, holding the line, holding your position that you're faithful to proclaim the gospel and that you're faithful to hold the truth that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord and you're faithful to hold that line. You hold the line against sin and death. I would remind you, you hold the line against sin and death, not against other churches. I'd remind you of that because we often get confused, but remember where Paul is. And remember what's happening. Other believers are slandering him behind his back. His reputation has been called into question. And what does he do? He says, I don't, I don't care. Whether they preach it by envy and vain conceit or with right motives, I don't care. The gospel is what matters. We war against sin and death. We war against sin and death. Our adversary is insidious, and he would rather you take your eyes off of the line or the position you're to be holding. He'd rather you take your eyes off that and look around and go, oh, that guy's not holding his line hard enough. That guy's not standing in his position well enough. Instead, he's telling you, there's an adversary, hold the line. You hold your part of the line. Then he says, in one spirit. This idea of spirit, uh, the, the word pneuma, right, it's this idea of, of uh, breath, right, but it's particularly breathing in. Breathing in. This is spirit, right, in one Spirit unified, and his emphasis here is that you would be unified in character and motivation. That as you hold the line together, that which is being poured into you would be a unified spirit. That you would be evidently, you are drinking from the same well. Does that make sense? That when people look at Christians, and when people look at Christian community, they ought to see, oh, they're drinking from the same well. They're drinking the same Water, they eat the same food, they look the same. What they're breathing in is the Spirit of Jesus Christ, their sustenance, and it shows in the way how. How does it show? In the way that we love 
one another. What does Christ say? They will know you by the way that you love one another. They will know you by your love for one another. This is the idea that you are breathing in the same thing. The second instruction here, he gives them, he gives them this standing firm that I would hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So just to rearrange that sentence in English so that it would, um, so that you'd hear the rhythm a little bit more, uh, it, that you would be striving side by side for the faith of the gospel in one mind. You hear the rhythm? Standing firm in one spirit. Striving side by side for the gospel in one mind. Right? So the idea here with striving side by side is he moves from this uh, military-like term of holding your position to this uh, second athletic-like term. Striving or wrestling together. Right? Wrestling for the gospel, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel. This is the idea of wrestling against an opponent together. Like there's, there's an opponent, and the opponent is sin and death. And we wrestle against that. We push back him. We push back sin and death. We, we war against principalities of darkness and we push back sin and death as a community, striving, laboring, wrestling together in prayer and in deed and in acts of love and in deeds of faith. We war against that adversary together in one mind. This, this idea of one mind literally means blowing out. It's the word psyche. You've got pneuma, spirit, breathing in, and then you've got psyche, blowing out. It's still connected to the idea of breathing. And it's breathing out or blowing out against something. So we, we are identified, one, by what we take in, and by what we breathe out. What we take in, what we breathe out. You know, this is crazy. We're identified by the very name and nature of God. The breath. The breath of life. There's a there is I don't know if you've ever done an Old Testament study of the name Yahweh or Jehovah, depending on if you're Western or Eastern. But if you uh, if you do a study of this tetragrammaton, we don't know exactly how it was pronounced, but we do know one thing, and that is that these were most likely breathing marks. So when Moses says, "Whom should I say sent me?" God breathes on him. Yahweh. It's this word, breathe, breathe, breath. It means to be, or really it means I be. It's an improper Hebrew grammar, uh, the tetragrammaton. It's the, from the word hayah, and if you derive it in multiple different ways, it becomes I be. We translate that I am because we can't process I be in, in English unless you're from an Ebonics culture. But the um, this idea that it is life itself, existence itself, and I want you to hear what Paul is saying. I, I want you to be in one spirit and in one mind. I want you to be breathing in and out Jesus. That people would see and go, those people know the same God. And they worship Him, and it's obvious by their love 
that gets poured out. So standing firm, striving side by side for the faith, wrestling together against the adversary, standing for truth and proclaiming truth. Now, proclaiming truth often means that you are going to have long and difficult conversations with each other to sharpen each other and determine exactly the phrases and words and truth that we believe. And I want, I want you to hear this because often in America we struggle with this. That is okay. It is okay to talk deeply about the things of God and to come to a point where you go, I don't know that I'm where you are yet. But to recognize that we are sharpening one another and that's a good thing. It's a good thing. We strive side by side. Side by side. This is the idea of arms knit together for the faith of the gospel. And then he says here, the third thing, not frightened or shuddering or trembling in anything. Not frightened or shuddering or trembling in anything the adversary throws at us. Look at it. He says that you would not be frightened by anything by your opponents. So he explains that you would not be frightened or afraid or trembling. Christians do not have a spirit of fear, but a spirit of sound mind. We have a spirit of love and of sound mind. That's what marks us. These are marks of Christianity. We're not afraid. Oh, don't get me wrong. We're people, and we struggle. And there may be anxiousness, and there may be times of minor fears, but what I tell my kids when I'm exhausted and they're telling me I can't sleep because I'm tired, when I am afraid, I will, they're not doing it, trust in the Lord. When I am afraid, I will trust in the Lord. The mark of Christianity is when we see something that's right to do, and we are terrified to do it. We do it anyway because we trust in the Lord. When we see something that needs to be done in our own lives and we're afraid of what's going to happen, we do it anyway because we trust in the Lord. We are not frightened by anything our opponents throw at us. When, when people slander us from a distance and we're imprisoned, we trust in the Lord. We do not fear, but we trust in the Lord, no matter the physical circumstance, no matter the reputation or slander, no matter the interrogation. Now, I'll be honest, I used to get really, really nervous when people would ask me deep, heavy theological questions, especially if I knew that they were not Christian, because I, I'd, get, I'd get caught in mouth, and I'd start to, you know, feel really nervous, and, and part of that was a good thing. Part of that was God driving me to study and learn and read so that I would build confidence. Part of it was just immature fear. I began to realize as time went on that I had this ace in my sleeve that I didn't know about or that I didn't fully understand, and that was the Spirit of God living in me, reminding me of His Word. And it's crazy how often it happens that you have a conversation with somebody who's challenging the faith 
And all of a sudden you remember every scripture you've never been able to remember before. And then you walk away going, man, that was awesome. And then you forgot everything the instant you walked away. And somebody asks you to recount the conversation. And you're telling them the conversation and you're going, it sounded a whole lot better when I was, when I was talking to them. And it was incredible. You see, we don't fear not because of our strength and our prowess and our ability. We don't fear because we know the God we serve. We don't fear because we know Jesus and he's the greatest. He's unparalleled. He he doesn't get defeated. That's why we don't fear. We're not afraid because he is king over all things. He's matchless in glory and in presence and in knowledge. So somebody comes to you to interrogate you. Well, how can you trust the Lord? If you're silent, you know what that means? The Lord probably wanted you to be silent. Happens in Acts a couple times that Paul is told to be quiet. Paul, the loud one, he's told to be quiet. God says, do not speak, for I have many that are in this city that are mine. In Corinthians, in, in Corinth, and he is defended. We do not fear because what can the adversary do to us? Indeed, what can man do to us? What can a man do to me? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Oh, you can make me uncomfortable for a little bit. But I'm going to glory for eternity. A little bit of discomfort here just makes that even better. I consider the weight of the suffering here to be nothing compared to the glory waiting to be revealed. Our unity in the gospel, this unity, this one spirit, one mind here, this idea, this is a clear sign of to them or to the adversaries, to the to the people who would dis, who would uh, slander the gospel, the people who would reject Christ, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. So these three things: standing firm and holding the line when it seems insane to do so, striving side by side for the sake of the gospel when it seems insane to do so, when it seems unreal to do so, and not fearing anything. This is a sign to the world that it will be destroyed, that the adversary will be defeated and will be overcome, indeed has been. And yet for us, it is a sign of salvation. Oh, how glorious it is when we see Christians and we fellowship with each other and we we have no basis of that fellowship other than Christ. I will tell you, it's beautiful. I like to drink hot tea and watch birds. Little ones. Fly and land on bird feeders. I love it. I, I will do it constantly. I like to draw pictures and paint. I like poetry. Yet, one of my best friends in this church is Kenny. 
<laughs> he, he, loves, he, he loves to fish when you get to. And he loves to work outside in his garden. He loves long talks with his wife on the porch. He loves small town life. We share in common a few things, but we are different, except for one major thing. We love Jesus more than anything else. We love Jesus more than anything else. And we are bound together by that love. Sorry, I didn't ask your permission to use you. And I would tell you the same with many. We are united in the gospel, and that unity, that love that unites us, makes the world go, this makes no sense at all. And it makes some of the world go, I want that. And it makes some of the world go, I hate that. They will know us by our love, but it doesn't mean that they will like us because of it. They will know us by our love, but it does not mean they will like us because of it. We have an adversary. We stay the, we stay the line. We hold the line. We strive together side by side, and we are not afraid. We are not afraid. So why does he want these three things? Let's look at verse, uh, verse 29 here. For it has been granted to you. Grab that. First, it's been granted to you. This is given to you. God gave this to you. It has been granted to you. And what's been granted here? It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. So belief is granted to you. First, believing is granted to you. So you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Believing and suffering are granted to you. Yay! Believing and suffering both are granted to you. Are granted to you by Christ. And for the sake of Christ, you are given belief and the joy of suffering for his sake. And then he says, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. They the Philippians here are sharing in the struggling of Paul. Now, this is what's weird, right? How are they sharing in the struggling of Paul? Paul's in prison somewhere else. How are they struggling with him? He's far away. Yet they are engaged in the same conflict that he's engaged in. So what's that conflict? Sin and death are running rampant in the world, and he's got the answer. Jesus Christ. He's sharing that answer. Sin and death are running rampant in the world, and he's got the answer, Jesus Christ. He's sharing that answer, and the people of Philippi are sharing that answer. We see this beautiful picture of faith living out in community spread apart. We know that we have sister churches, brother churches across this world that, that are battling for the faith of the gospel. Guess what? We're engaged in the same thing that they're engaged in. We are engaged in the same struggle. And in Hebrews chapter 13, what does he urge us to do? Remember those who are in prison as though you are in prison with them. 
as though you are there with them. Why? Because we share in this common faith that holds us together. And we fight the same war. How beautiful this is to share in salvation and in the work of the gospel. So as we close this morning, I want to encourage you by asking you one simple application question. How are you doing with this? How are you doing with it? Are you pressing it? Do you, do you need to, to deal with something? Are you pressing in to the gospel? Are you holding the line together? Are you united? Are you breathing in and out the word of God? How are you doing with it? I'm going let to it, let it rest there. And then we're going to plead with God that he would make his name great and his kingdom great. That we would say with Paul that nothing else matters, but that Jesus Christ would be glorified. That his name would be made great and he would be exalted now. That though we wait for the day when kingdom becomes a reality, we want his name exalted on the earth now. And as long as he is glorified, that's what we hope for. So, 